warm welcome to you all. Hope you'll thoroughly enjoy our program. Britannia, a very British podcast about very British movies with just a hint of professionalism. Scott here, as usual, with Stephen. Good morning, sir. Morning, mate. How are you doing? I'm very chirpy today. The sun is shining. I've got a long weekend off work. Uh, yourself, all good? Yeah, I've had a, a, a busy but not too traumatic week, so um, I'm <laughs> actually um, dealing dealing with the uh, the sun because been from the north of England, we're not that comfortable with that shiny ball of no. fire in the sky yeah, rainbows but, um, are black and you know, white up there isn't it yeah. it is mostly yeah. Yeah, yeah but you know I'm going to deal with it and <laughs> starting the weekend off nicely with yourself so that's good excellent good stuff I want to get cracking on this because I've got quite a few things to say um, it's my choice this week it's Dance with a Stranger from 1985 she was not the first woman to fall in love with a stranger. Where do you live? Out of the shop. Can I take you home tonight? Yes. Not the first to demand more of life than it could possibly give. What am I doing mixed up with a divorced nightclub hostess with two children? If you don't like it, David, you can love it. Well, you won't find another one like me. She was not the first to be used and abused. If you're going to meet my mother, I've got to break you to her as gently as possible. Hello, Mr. Blakely. Congratulations on your forthcoming marriage. Please return front door key immediately. I'm keeping it. I'll call the police if you don't leave me alone. You can call the Brigade of Guards for all I care. 20th Century Fox presents Dance with a Stranger. The true story of Ruth Ellis. <laughs> the last woman in Britain to be hanged. Miranda Richardson is Ruth. Rupert Everett is her cavalier lover. Look, Squire, the lady said the bar's closed. <laughs> Ian Holm as the faithful Desmond. Desmond, you've been so good to me and Andy. Don't tell me how good I've been. I hate everything you did before you met me. Take two aspirins and tell me how you feel in the morning. Compulsive story of obsession. But who was really to blame? Judge for yourself. Dance with a stranger. Coming soon. Dance with a stranger, released in the UK on the 1st of March 1985. It's directed 
by Mike Newell, who is, is it Four Weddings and a Funeral fame? I think most people would know him from. Yeah, and Donny Brasco, I think, as well. A couple well. of um, Harry Potters, I believe, as well. I wouldn't know. Uh, no, I'm, I'm sure I read that somewhere. <laughs> Screenplay by the fantastic Sheila Delaney. Yes. Who wrote A Taste of Honey. We'll probably touch on that in a while. And starring the equally fantastic Miranda Richardson, Rupert Everett. Oh. <laughs> I was going to pause there for the, for the you know the obvious reaction from yourself. <laughs> Calm yourself, sir. Oh. Um, Rupert Everett, Ian Holm, Joanne Wally's in there as well, and a couple of other yes. sort of famous faces. Let me tell you what it's all about. According to Wikipedia, Dance with a Stranger is a 1985 British tragedy film, it says here, directed by Mike Newell, telling the story of Ruth Ellis, the last woman to be hanged in Britain in 1955. The film won critical acclaim, and it aided the careers of the two leading actors, Miranda Richardson and Rupert Everett, with a screenplay by Sheila Delaney, the author of Taste of Honey. It was her third major screenplay. The story of Ruth Ellis, which this film dramatises, has resonance in Britain since it provided part of the background to the extended national debates which led to the progressive abolition of capital punishment from 1965 onwards. Yeah, it certainly has its place, doesn't it? Yeah, there's there's a set of movies, I was watching this yesterday, there's a set of movies round about this time that I think would make a great triple bill. The, The obvious one is Let Him Have It. Yeah. Because it's, which is what I thought you were yeah, going to be doing when you, were, you know, I guessed at that one, and I guessed uh, it was either this one or that yeah. one. And I guessed wrong, didn't I? Last, yeah. last episode. But because of the, the the time period, the subject matter, the, the miscarriage of justice in that case, and and the controversy in this particular case, the other one, although not specifically related, content wise, I always would sort of lump scandal in here as well because it's of that era of british filmmaking where they were doing historical dramas from the 50s and the 60s with people like joanne wally and ian Holm and and, and stars like that and it was that that like we, we're calling it like a little golden era of british cinema making weren't we the, the channel four sort of time yeah it's it's dipping into the the reality um of history and actually using that as a catalyst for our story rather than just coming up with fiction yeah. um, and that as you say that they're, they're uh, from the same era mm. um, mostly but, but they're the three that i saw sort of associate together because they all mm. came out around about the same time as well and if you want to include a fourth movie we've obviously got to include yield to the night the diana doors movie that we reviewed previously yes which you know commonly thought to be the real fellow story but not it's not but still it's um you know there's a precursor and there's a, a foreshadowing there definitely yeah yeah it's it's it was made after the roof ellis incident yield to the night but roof ellis is never actually mentioned but the links are there they're obvious aren't mm. they we, but the we book just... was written before roof ellis, ah, wasn't it? right so, okay so so that was the thing the book was written before that the film was done afterwards and it was kind of did the, did Ruth Ellis's case help get the get it book made into a film? Yeah, um, and then actually, what what you're saying is it actually still did play into the the debate um, about capital punishment and such like. So I think you're right to say why that should be in there um, as part of this social commentary and social yeah. debate. If you want to get like a true, well, not a true picture, but a, a wider picture of what the background to this story was all about yield to the night's quite a good good place to start i've seen this only once before 
And I didn't remember too much about it, apart from I remembered I remembered liking it. Have you seen this a couple of times? I've seen it once before. Only the once in, before. In my memory. Yeah. I think I think I may have seen a bit of it a, a second time at some point, yeah. or maybe maybe only saw it partially in the first place, and I watched it fully. I, I seem to remember I've watched I've watched it fully at one point, and I have also seen it in bits at another point. So this isn't a this isn't a first time watch for me, but okay. um, it certainly, um, although I remember I remembered it being good, mm. I didn't really remember a lot. No, with it. No, um, I remember the apart basics. From the fact that I did actually get to see Miranda Richardson topless. <laughs> so perhaps I saw it at a younger age, and that was my main focal point when I did watch it. That was it, and you've, you've yeah. been in love ever since. God bless yeah. you. Um, what I like particularly about this is that the story that most people know is the aftermath of this story the hanging the controversy the outrage the campaigning that led to the abolition of capital punishment she was the last woman to be hanged in this country legally and what this film actually focuses on and develops is what led up to that story to the to the story that everybody knows which is, you know, Ruth Ellis was the last person to be hanged. I like that idea because it's, it's literally just a sentence at the end that tells you that. The rest yeah. of it, you know, the rest of it is, well, you know, there's there's more story beforehand, apparently, if you read into this, but they've chosen a specific starting point where she first meets Blakely. Yeah. And it carries I th- on I think there. I think you're right in that this, this film's only about an hour and a half long. Mm. Um, and they packed a lot in, to be fair, in, in my oh, opinion. Yeah. But they could have given it an extra half hour and covered some of the um, after the bit where she's actually, you know, you don't even get to see the police arriving on the scene. No. Um, you know, that's how, how much it, it stops um, at, <laughs> which I think works. Yes. Um, but it's um, they could have done in, a, in the hands of a different different bunch of people that perhaps would have done that where they'd had some of the court case or some of the trial or whatever or shown a you know shown a, a snapshot of her trial and then been hanged i think that the stat the point at which they started it off i think was a a, a good point because mm-hmm. it actually was that focal point of her life and and her relationship with him and so i think that they've they've kept it kept it to a nice condensed amount with, and put in enough of the story to make it worthwhile concentrating on that that, that period yeah we go we get a good insight into her her life before this story starts we know about the father of her illegitimate son we know about partly about a relationship with her family she's quite sort of alienated from them and it just picks up at the ideal point to tell the story that leads up to the story we all know. As I say, we, we know she was hanged. That's a that's a film for another day. You know, the trial and, and that's that's Yield to the Night. That's that film, you know. Mm, yeah. Um but this, I mean, this is a staggering performance by Miranda Richardson. I think she's absolutely superb in this. Yeah, I mean absolutely. I mean I'm you know, for me saying about what a stunning looking woman she is. Um the the performance is absolutely stunning in its own right and deserves accolades. Um uh, there's strong performances from the three main characters in total, to be honest, yeah. but she she does 
carry that role to such an extent that I mean, obviously, she's the focal point of the film in in the main. Yes, and her performance is absolutely standing. I mean, that the some of the elements where she's not doing the sort of delivering lines as such, she's either um, just giving it a look because of the way he's being beastly to her, or going to the other extreme where she's, you know, in mid-flow with there being an argument and physical fight. And both of those elements show the, the strength in her um, acting ability and um, has to be has to be acknowledged straight away. That Yeah, I think the other standout performers, I know we'll probably say that Rupert Everett is equally as impressive here, but I think Ian Holm is, is a class above in this. That's why I say the three roles, yeah, yeah because although... It's as though it's a supporting role rather than Rupert Everett and Miranda Richards and being the two leads sort of thing. Ian Holm, I mean, it's has he ever been bad in anything? Um, no, Ian Holm, to be true. perfectly honest. That's true. But, um, I mean, he might have been in some bad films, but he's never been bad in the film. <laughs> His understated support role in that that way is incredibly strong, strongly acted. You, the way you really feel what his part was in this due to the way his performance is um, is well worthy of acknowledgement, absolutely. Yeah, it's a, it's a great portrayal of a man that's trying to do the best for somebody that he's got this sort of unrequited love for, although it is requited towards the end. Yeah, doing doing the best for somebody who doesn't want to do the best for themselves. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, I've been there myself and I'm sure you have and other people exactly. have. So it's, you know. He portrays it so well and... It's just a fascinating story of 50s values and also class structure because she's not of the same class as Rupert Everett and some of the guys she's now hanging about with and the guys she's entertaining. They're, they're, they're another, you know, another class above her. And, and that's highly evident in the scene where Rupert Everett is, is a racing driver and he takes her to Goodwood and she tries to fit in by, by doing like champagne picnics and things like that. Yeah. And it's just her way of trying to be part of that social circle. And then she says, I can't remember exactly what she says, but she highlights the fact that she sort of sticks out like a sore thumb at these sort of events. But then when she's in her own environment, when she's a hostess or a singer at the club, she rules that whole environment totally. Yeah, yeah, she's the she's the queen queen of the club, absolutely. Mm. And she doesn't take any nonsense from whoever it may be. Yeah, no matter what, yeah, what, how tough, how toughy and rich they are, she's still, still in charge. That, that's highlighted yeah. as well at the, at the point where Rupert Everett first meets her, and he sends over a bottle of champagne to her table, and he comes and joins her. She has a sip out of the champagne and gets up and walks away. He says, where are you going? She says, well, I'm going back to work. This is what I do. You know, <laughs> no expensive bottle of champagne is going to buy her time. She's got some, yeah. you know, that's what she's totally focused on. Just want to mention something at this point. Do you know what the other connection to Die in the Doors is with this movie? Um, no, I don't. Okay. bit of trivia for you. Around about the time of the events of this movie, probably a couple of years before, a little bit earlier, 52, 53, I think it may have been, Diana Dawes made a movie called Lady Godiva Rides Again, which is set in the world of beauty pageants. You know, the old traditional, you know, Miss UK, as we used to have them back in the day, you know. And there was a whole host of extras. Joan Collins was one of them. 
and so was Ruth Ellis. Oh, blimey. Yeah, part-time model at the time. Photographer's model, got into a little bit of acting. You wouldn't recognise her. It's it's a very bizarre shot of her. She's got very short, dark hair. Uh, but it's definitely her. There is photographic, you know, proof of this on, on Google, on the internet. And it's just... It just made me think, oh, blimey, there's a there's an instant connection there with Diana Dawes, who obviously went on to play a Ruth Ellis-type oh, character in Yield to the Night. Look it up. It's it's fascinating. Oh, wow, it is. Yeah, that's what a link, eh? Yeah. I don't know. No, I never knew anything. Certainly, I haven't read that on IMD review, and that, you know, so somebody's missed. So, talking of the cast, I know it. Yes. Um, the, the Village Hall of Fame, um, as... An official curator. You are the um, official curator now. We, so. <laughs> yeah, we. Oh, I've got the official position. You have. Um, now, I forgot to tell you. Didn't you get the memo? <laughs> That's how professional we are. Um, so we we do actually have somebody entering the village hall of fame. Oh, um, following this. Um, Can I take a guess? Because oh, you get it. Yeah. Because I haven't checked. Um, All right, take a guess. It's not Leslie Manville, is it? Because that's only two for her, isn't it? That's no, only two for her. Yeah. And it can't be Rupert Everett or Miranda Richardson. Ian Holm hasn't been in anything. No. And it's not Joanne Wally. No. No, you're going to have to tell me, sir. Uh, Stratford Johns. Really? <laughs> what, yeah. else, what else has he been in? Um, he was in The Plank. Right. And he was in A Night to Remember. Don't remember him in either of those. I remember obviously watching the yeah. movies, but I don't remember him being in them. Yeah. So he's in in there. There's also um, another second appearance that we've got, mm-hmm. and it's um it's, it's a woman called Mickey Iveria. Iveria, yeah, her name is, and she was in A Night to Remember as well, and then in in this. Um, although originally her name was Princess <laughs> Mickey Iveria because she's a originally a, a Ukrainian princess, oh. and she was the um, the landlady. Really? And the elderly landlady. So, so she was in Night to Remember. So she's got she's two. Night to Remember, and then this. So the second appearance in this, but um, Stratford Johns. Yeah, he was. He's um, <laughs> he's now in the Village Hall of Fame. Another unlikely inductee. Yeah. This is why I didn't look him up this week because I didn't think anybody was going to make it into the Hall of Fame. Thank God you're on the ball. <laughs> well. It's, it's, where the my mind works, I want you know. I go through these lists of things. So, um, so yes, so we've we've got one more in there. Fantastic! So. This this Hall of Fame is getting bigger and bigger by the week. So an extension. <laughs> so, what do you think of the movie as a whole? What your general thoughts on the film? Because we haven't really spoke about. You know, we we like the performances. We're fascinated by the story. As an eighties British movie, I think it works really well. I think it's a great entry into that series. I think it's it's it entirely fits with me and my, the sensibilities as far as um, us recognizing this as being part of this film for type, you know, handmade films type mm. um, set of films that that did actually rebirth British film, yeah. and it's a, a a very good telling of the story as far as the historical um, aspects. I don't know the actual story myself well enough for the reality of the facts to know how accurate it is, but I assume it is reasonably accurate. Um, and the story is, is compelling. 
Yes. And the performances make it even more so because they, in themselves, um, are astounding. So the the film packs a lot in. It felt, in a good way, it felt to me like it was longer than an hour and a half. Mm, yeah. Um, but it actually wasn't. It was, I think, an hour, an hour and thirty six or something. Mm. But it it um it packs such a lot in. But also the way in which they have taken that snapshot without actually needing feeling the need to show the after. Yeah. part of her arrest and the trial or showing uh, too much of the lead up to the meeting I think that it's it's been done very concisely and they've concentrated the attention of the viewer on on the importance of what actually went on in their relationship and and how it was a, a doomed a doomed uh, relationship and somebody who was um, captivated by uh, a person to the extent where they they'd lost any perspective on the rest of the things in their life and as even their own self-preservation and that is captured in it that, yeah that compulsion that that almost addiction to a person and um, despite what's good for you um, and that that's captured in the film and the performances obviously go a long way to do that but the the writing from Sheila is, you know, obviously is top-notch as well because, you know, you can't doubt her talent either. It's interesting, isn't it, that she portrays a character whose job basically is to keep her distance from men. You know, she's supposed to attract men into the club and entertain them but still keep that professional distance, but she finds it so impossible to resist him. There's something about him that makes it virtually impossible for her to say no every time he's about incredible the way that one of the things about this type of movie and this is why again i sort of lump it together with let him have it and scandal is what all three of these movies do is the attention to detail of the period is so spot on and we're not just talking about you know the the period cars and and clothing and and things like that if you look at things in the bar, you know, the bottles of small bottles of Schweppes tonic and adverts on the wall. And, and it's all just captured perfectly. Also, there's songs of the time being played in the background. We get that quite a lot with records being played or, yeah. or music in the club. But there's one specific song, which is Dance With A Stranger, which is an original song, I think, uh, that Miranda Richardson sings. But also, I believe Mari Wilson does a version of it, whether it's on the end credits. But do you remember Mari Wilson, Just What I Always Wanted, from the 80s? Yeah, the memory's about absolutely. Yeah, yeah, she was like a 50s sort of tribute dancer. She had the big beehive hairdo. Mari Wilson and the Wilsonettes, I think they were called. She sings the theme song, Would You Dance With A Stranger? But I think Miranda Richardson obviously does the version that's that's performed live in the film. But it's that whole attention to detail, even things, oh, you know, it sounds silly, like bedspreads and driving gloves and headscarves, and it's all of that sort of thing. You think, this is 1955. There's there's nothing there that would look out of place. And there's the, the other part of the attention to detail is that there's the, the references to, um, I don't know, things like um, when they're, they're talking about a banana, Yes, with with the exoticism that they have yep. of a banana, uh, which now you know we just take for granted a banana is <laughs> something we have. You've just but reminded me, but, you know that 
that and it's not it, they don't make a big thing out of this as far as oh you know make a, a whole scene out of it but it's a it's a throwaway comment in yeah. one of the scenes about <laughs> and and this is you know these are the kind of things that it's actually grounding it in the era properly rather than it being um a, a sort of fantasized version whatever or a rose tinted version it's actually making it more the realism of the time which is a lot better for the viewer to actually feel in the place of the film there is one other example actually but just talking about bananas one of my mum's sayings was she never saw a banana till she was 12 you know because that was the um, the era she was brought up in um the smog the, the smog that hit london for that period of six weeks or whatever it was in that that autumn winter of 1954 i think it was yeah. 54 or 53 i can't remember but it's round about the time of the coronation or the year after and famously killed hundreds and hundreds of people and led to the clean air act didn't it it was the yeah it's, it's highlighted in is it in oh i don't know if you watch it on netflix there's the crown which tells the story of the, um, elizabeth the second and there's a whole episode dedicated to it because it, it saves Churchill. There's a point where um, Churchill is about to be sort of defeated or ousted as leader of the of the party or prime minister at one point, and it, the, the fog, the smog saves him because of the, the bringing in of the Clean Air Act and his, his actions. But it's just there. If, if you didn't know that there was this period in, in London history where there was this dangerous fog... You'd have just t- taken it for being, oh, it's just a foggy day in London at that particular scene. But it's it's obviously rooted around the truth and, and events that were going on. Yeah, it's it's it, you know it, it's keeping it in the era and making sure that again they could have made a bigger thing out of the, the smog aspect of it, but no, they didn't need to because it was just grounding. When they're watching the TV, it's typical TV of the 1950s. That's genuine TV footage because the commentator, I recognised his voice. It was Eamon Andrews. <laughs> Because he was, uh, yeah. Before, well, this is mm. well, this is your life. You see, yeah. you're actually. Uh... <laughs> I recognise stuff like that. Well done, <laughs> sir. Um, because before this is your life, he was he was a, a boxing commentator, and he used to you know just do things like news programs, uh, and that was definitely Eamon Andrews's voice narrating the guy on the pogo stick trying to break the world record. Silly little things like that. Well, those things like the you know the pogo stick records and all this kind of stuff. That's what passed for. Um, like headline news, um, you know. It's it, now it's all it's all Brexit and, and youth stabbings. But, yeah. um, but, then, but then you know it was it, it was perhaps um, they weren't reporting the more gritty things, but it was it was that they were, you know, yeah, you, you had the, a pogo stick record breaking attempt was <laughs> was something that people would tune back into the news later on to see whether he'd actually managed to do it or not because it was that you know it was captured the imagination of the country so much um which is you know uh, uh, i suppose in some ways a, a more innocent era yeah um <laughs> i read somewhere or saw something on a documentary and i was looking a few bits up about this at uh, this period in history 1955 in, in the uk only 15% of the population owned a car Right. Let alone a sports car. So you can imagine that's probably some of the fascination of Blakely yeah. to Ellis. It's it's just the whole... Let's, let's talk about this class thing, because there's a documentary series which I just dipped into this morning that was on BBC4 last year, and I think it's called The Trials of, of, um, the Trials of Ellis, or something like that, The Ellis Trials. Right. 
And it's a three-part documentary by an American filmmaker. And she usually makes documentaries about American serial killers and American crime. But she was fascinated by the whole story of the Ellis case. A, because it was the, the, the story of the last woman to be hanged. But B, although it wasn't quite a miscarriage of justice, what actually happened was after the trial the whole element of diminished responsibility came into being. Mm-hmm. That never existed pre-Ruth Ellis. I'm going to sit down and watch this three hours of this documentary because I watched about 20 minutes this morning and I like the way it's leading because it gives little hints as to where it's going to go. And they bring in genuine Scotland Yard detectives with 30 years' experience, judges who may have been sitting at the time. You know, and what they're basically saying is that there's one sort of side of thought that says even by 50s standards the law was upheld and it was a fair trial but then there are others that are saying that well no even if you consider you know what the legal processes were back then something was still wrong it wasn't i think the main argument was if somebody's taken five minutes out to speak to her son the outcome would have been different because he witnessed so much yeah, the the abuse and stuff, but mm. I think going going back to that era, um, I think that the testimony and of children wasn't considered exactly. Um, yeah, it was it was weird because you, in in some respects people were were considered to be um, more adult and more you know as far as when they left school and started working all this kind of stuff, they were considered to be adults at an earlier point in back then. But there was also the the idea legally that the people of you know of a younger age that they they weren't considered reliable for no. for legal purposes no. this is um, what this as witnesses are to mm-hmm. actually be put on trial themselves and that was the the, the like you're saying that's in we've modernised that would have been a different that thing would have been but a different at the time story. but also these two detectives and this is literally in the first twenty minutes of the documentary they're looking over they go to the the national archives in Kew. And they find all the original statements, all typewritten up, all signed by Ruth Ellis. And it's a three, her statement is three pages of A4, three sides of A4. And the detectives are saying, well, if that was any other murder confession, because it starts off as a confession, it would still be 10 times that length because the officers should have been questioning motive where did she get the gun, that sort of thing, you know, developing a whole story rather than, I think, her opening her opening statement on the statement is, this is my confession, I'm guilty, I know I am, I'm confused. And that was the trigger point for these modern-day detectives that said, even in 1950s, to see something that says, I'm confused, your next question would be, why are you confused, what is it you don't understand? And... It's a fascinating story. I say it's not actually a miscarriage of justice as such, but just in the way that things developed. And there was a lot of protest. There was a lot of outrage over the whole thing. I'm just going to read you something. I'm, I'm, I'm sort of taking over a little bit here, mate. But just, just That's listen, fine, no. Yeah, just listen to this. At the time, Raymond Chandler was in the UK. And he wrote, let's have a look. He was working in London, 1955. And he wrote about the whole trial. This thing haunts, and so far as I may say it, disgusts me as something obscene. I'm not referring to the trial, of course, but to the medieval savagery of the law. 
I've been tormented for a week at the idea that a highly civilised people should put a rope around the neck of Ruth Ellis and drop her through a trap and break her neck. This was a crime of passion under considerable provocation. No other country in the world would hang this woman. And that was the general feeling at the time in 1955. Well, I think I think coming from the United States, is probably wrong that no other country would treat her <laughs> so badly. There's still um, 31 states who've uh, got the death penalty but, now. Yeah, yeah but, um, you know, particularly if you're of um, uh, a, a different race. But um, the... But the, the the fact is, I mean, yeah, I mean, you know, coming from a point of view where capital punishment is barbaric and not civilized, in my opinion. But I think that's that that coming from somebody contemporary at the time who obviously mm. was well aware of the law and aware of criminal cases and such like. Uh, for them to actually say that shows that the the notoriety and the social impact that her case was actually having um, extended to somebody you know of. Uh, Raymond Chandler's uh, fame. Mm, yeah, um, I think it, it is indicative of of the importance of why this needed to be made into a film. To be perfectly honest, yeah, um, wasn't just because of the fact that she happened to be the last one to be um, hanged, but also the the nature of the case itself. And you know, you're right to be highlighting that the the intricacies of what it says about the system of law and what the investigation was into how she should be treated as far as her statements and that what led her to to commit the act that's all you know is all something that that should have been um dealt with and is perhaps you know as you say it's a it's subject to a different film yeah but it's it is important i was recently reading about the lawyer who defended the um teacher in the the famous monkey trial the scopes um evolution oh, trial over yes. in the states yes. and and he had pioneered um a few de- decades earlier he'd basically pioneered the defense of diminished responsibility due to insanity yeah and um, which then by then had you know become something that was uh, as a standard and mm. you got to realize where where in the legal framework of things and legal history where the the, the perceptions moving as far as what is a defense and what isn't at one point, no matter what, why you killed somebody, it was still you were guilty of it. You know, no matter what the provocation was, no matter what your own mental state was, no matter what. And this is a this is part and parcel of this overview of of what is considered to be civilized justice. Yeah. And um, her case is is a is one of the points, not just in this country, but I think elsewhere as well, to be considering how pe- people get justice for um, crimes and. Yes, she was she was guilty of murder, but to what extent was that provoked and mm-hmm. was it incited and was that the right punishment for her? I mean, this is something of a wider debate that would have crossed over to other countries, um, especially with people of, of international renown like Raymond Chandler commenting on it. Yeah. So, absolutely. The, the movie also hints at not necessarily drug abuse, but she's on tranquilizers as well. So obviously, you know, her decisions are going to be affected if that's what she's... Because literally she just had the miscarriage the week before or two weeks before. Well, and, the way it's played in the film, she she does seem to be in a, a sort of a zombie-like state when she does yeah. actually um, commit the act. Yeah. Yeah. It's 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 all um, spaced over a Easter weekend, isn't it? It's Good Friday that he lets her down and lets the sun down. She can't find him on the Easter Saturday and she kills him on the Easter Sunday. Briefly, just going back to the the legal bits and pieces, I also read somewhere, Albert Pierpoint, 
who was this nation's hangman for oh a few decades, wasn't he? It was a good 20, 30 years, wasn't he? He was the hangman, I believe. Yeah. Um, this affected him quite badly as well, to the extent that after he'd obviously, you know, done his duty and was the executioner at the scene, he kept in touch several times with Ellis's sister, not in a social way or anything like that, but every time he got whiff of something coming up to do with the Ellis case, something legal, because obviously the protests would still be continuing. He would get in touch with her first so that she would be prepared if there was any press attention. Well, didn't he become a anti-capital punishment? He did, um, didn't he? Yeah. <laughs> sort of voice. Yeah. Um, this, yeah. I, I know we've got some sort of written and unwritten rules about Real Britannia, and I think we're going to sort of allow certain TV movies, aren't we? We say Cathy Come Home will we'll fall yeah, into yeah. this and Abigail's Party and... Uh, and I'm thinking now, <laughs> we're getting a bit of a theme with you tonight. Timothy Spall. Yeah. Timothy Spall in Pillarpoint will be a great movie to discuss. Look at the themes we're getting here. Temer Lington Place, Yield to the Night, this one. We're going to do Let Him Have It. We've, we've got a whole new whole new podcast starting, Miscarriages of Justice. Uh, <laughs> as a film, it's almost, almost like a modern version of a, a noir. Because you can almost see her as the femme fatale. It's it's that sort of character, isn't it? You get this smoky nightclub singer done wrong by the boyfriend who shoots him down in cold blood. And it's done in such a great modern way. It is. And, I mean, you know, she probably would have liked to have seen herself in the, in more romantically as a femme fatale. And, um, but in actual fact, she was somebody who um, lost control mm. of the relationship, which initially, like you said, she had, because initially it was in the club where she was in control but that was lost um, she lost control in him in the the relationship with him and you know that was her downfall and yeah. um unfortunately that was that was the, the doom that there is within the character and and therefore the film i'm just checking something out on imdb i read something out at the beginning of the show that sheila delaney this was her third screenplay so i'm assuming a taste of honey must have been adapted by her I want to know what the other one is. Just having a little look. Taste of Honey. Ah, she did Charlie Bubbles in 1968, which is the Albert Finney movie. So, Oh, yes, yeah. yeah. And a couple of others in the 90s, but they're the three that she's probably best known for. So it was just intriguing me, because it was, it was just... I, I know one of them, I knew two of them. Prior to watching this, I mean, my impressions of it, having seen it only the once, was I enjoyed it back in 1986, 87, when I saw it as a... A teenager never gone back to it as seems to be the case with a lot of movies as we're finding out as the weeks go by and instantly loving this movie again i'm giving it five stars on letterbox if, if i could give it four and a half i would but i don't like giving half stars it's it's, it's the performances are the highlight of the film. The attention to detail is absolutely staggering in this, from, as I say, the old cars to the driving gloves to, you know, boxes of Omo on the on the shelf, you know. <laughs> so it's all there. And it's a fascinating story. And it's told bloody well by one of our best screenwriters and playwrights, Sheila Delaney. I think it is just a perfect choice for her to have written this. Absolutely, yeah. I think she she had exactly the right sensibilities and talent to be able to tell this story um, to its best advantage. 
Excellent. In your rating system? Uh, well, I mean, I wouldn't necessarily say it was one that people need to go out and, and find on a cinema to, no, no. to experience to its best um, because it's, it's, you know, it's, you can capture it easily on a, on a television screen. Yep. But I would say that to, to keep your eye out for it and definitely make a point of watching it if you see, if you have the opportunity to do so, because it, not just because of the performances and, as you say, the way in which the production is well put together and scripted and et cetera, but it, because of what it actually um, also has as far as historical um, importance for this country. Oh, yeah. As I say, if, if, if you're a fan of history, especially sort of post-war history and the things that the Rainbow Valley podcast touches on, you know, those... Little... God, the, the great Rainbow Valley <laughs> podcast, yeah. I don't plug yeah. it on this every, show. Every, everybody should be listening to that, to be perfectly honest. Um, it's I something know. I eagerly anticipate um, when the episodes come out because it's so so great in its detail and, and well told. Um, the production values it. on that itself are, are great, so... Yes, thank you. <laughs> I'm not cutting and, and, I, and I mean all that as well. Thank you very much. That's why you're thing. my mate. Um, yeah. <laughs> but that side of things, if you've got a fascination with those sort of stories or anything that was going on around that time, it's, it's as I say, and it also touches on other things, like we say, that were relevant to the time, like the end of rationing, the smog, the cars, the, everything is all there. Let's take a short break, mate. It's going to be your choice for what we're watching next time. Okay, Stephen, what we're watching next time, as we said just before that short break, it's your choice for me, my favourite part of the show... What are we going to right. be watching? Yeah, let's tell me. Tell well, me. we're gonna we're gonna go back to a film made in the sixties, um, which is your favourite era. It is but, indeed. Um, as as it happens, it's not a film set in the sixties, so that might be disappointing for you. Okay. Um, it's actually a, a film that's set five hundred years before. Um, so, um, and unfortunately, um, it it doesn't star Kenneth Moore, who's one of your favourites, but yeah. it, it is about um, Thomas Moore. Um, oh, this is a man for all seasons. Best picture Oscar winner. Mm. Paul Schofield. Yeah, that's it. Robert Shaw. That's the one. You, you've hit the big guns there. Yeah, I thought. Well, it's uh, you know obviously um, the monarchy and and particularly uh, Henry VIII is particularly uh, British and iconic yeah. and. Um, I thought we'd go through a bit of history for... We you know, haven't done a historical, stuff. really, have we? we Not done a lot, no. no. Um, so I thought, you know, this um, this probably needs to be covered at, at some point. And although it's, although it's you know, got a bigger claim and seen a bit more internationally accepted and, and stuff at the time, it still is a, a British film with mm. a predominantly British cast, with oh, the yeah. exception of um, Orson Welles. Of course, um, is he? Is he Cardinal? He's not the Cardinal, is he? He's, it's Cardinal Wolsey. He is Cardinal yeah. Wolsey, yeah. Yeah. So, but otherwise, it's British cast, and um, I think the the director is um, Robert Zinnemann. He's um, yeah. he's foreign. I think he was somewhere Eastern European originally. Okay. But um, but yes, but it's um, it's a big film. But I think it's you know it's got a, uh, such a lot of Britishness in there that um, I thought why not give it a go? Go for a different era entirely. That's... to what we've been covering before. 
a fine, fine choice. I'm going to let you into a secret. I've seen it once, and I didn't enjoy it. Well, we'll see then. Yeah, it's one of those ones that I, I don't totally give up on movies a lot of the time, especially something as highly acclaimed and Best Picture winner. And, and Perhaps it was just my frame of mind when I was watching it, or might have been a bit tired when I was watching it before. I couldn't get into it. So now you've given me the opportunity to get into it. Does that put Robert Shaw in the Hall of Fame? He's going to be at least oh, two yeah. for him, I think. I think it's. I think he's only on a two for at that point. Two for um, John Hurt gets another mention. He's a two for as well. Yeah. You, so, Joyce is in it. Fantastic. Uh, <laughs> Colin Blakely will probably be in there as well. We're going to have to check. There's Nigel Davenport. Blimey, yes. Here in there, yeah. Yeah. That might pop up. Um, but yes oh looking forward to that I have a copy on the shelf so I could be watching that this week good as I say it, you know it, it might be that you you know you change your opinion from last time mm. but it might more um, actually solidify your opinion from before but of course yeah. that'll still make an interesting review either way I, I'm interested to find out what my brain thinks sometimes so. <laughs> what just in general just in general <laughs> and it's you that pushes me towards things like this to actually you know make it work a little bit sometimes so that's a good choice excellent excellent Stephen thank you very much for being there again today sir my pleasure I will see you next week take care take care positive shower positive shower well, Good luck. Thank you. Hand up, sir.